This is another iRaw podcast. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale. Um, and as regular listeners know, we've been doing a series about the social, environmental, and other issues with uh, car dependency and how much time we spend on roads, driving around, um, and all the negative impacts of that and how it might be fixed. Um, the other episodes in this series have dealt a bit more with the problems, you know, toward the end we often gesture toward solutions, but um, today I wanted to dig a bit more into um, public transit as a solution and, and talk about how to actually reduce um, vehicle miles traveled, VMTs as they're called. And so my guest today is Kevin Shen. He is a policy analyst and advocate with the Union of Concerned Scientists in their Clean Transportation Program. Um, and we talk about some of the obstacles uh, faced by public, public transit in the United States, um, you know, what sorts of policies might help us overcome them. And then we also talk about um, something that is, you know, not directly related, but certainly part of this problem of too many vehicles on the road going too far, which is um, large vehicles, think buses, trucks, delivery vans, emergency vehicles, and how those might be decarbonize as well, um, because that's another thing that Kevin researches. This is bittersweetly now the last month of storytelling animals, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, I am starting a graduate program in environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder at the end of August, um, and the podcast and the Associated Book Club will be going on uh, at least a several months long hiatus. Um, I don't know exactly whether and when it will be launched, if at all. Um, but yeah, I just want to take some moment to say thank you to whether this is your first episode or your 49th, uh, 48th, 47th, whichever episode this is. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to those who have shared it with friends on social media, who have supported this podcast on Patreon. Um, I will be pausing your Patreon payments uh, at the end of the month, um, so you won't be paying me for nothing. Um, and if you don't yet support this podcast on Patreon, now could be the perfect time um, to go to patreon.com slash storytellingpod and sign up to basically, in effect, just give me a one-month payment um, before I pause them. Um, just to, I don't know, if you've enjoyed this podcast, it could be a nice gesture. And also, if any of you do that, it's going to make it more likely that I come back um, with this podcast in the future if I know that there are people out there who are going to be willing to listen and support it. Although, of course, I will uh, let Patreon subscribers know before I restart their payments. While I am on hiatus, the best way to keep up with me will be um, either on Twitter, if it's still around, um, or via my newsletter, which I'll send, send out every, I don't know, two, three weeks or so um, with book recommendations, articles I've read, uh, any updates on my own writing, if I'm doing that, um, or... I don't know, important news in the world of climate, ecology, and animals. So, without further ado, here is Kevin Shen. Hi, I'm here with uh, Kevin Shen, a policy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, so, for those who aren't familiar, maybe we could just start with um, what is the Union of Concerned Scientists, and how would you describe your role? Yeah. Thanks so much for thanks so much for asking that. So, 
We are the Union of Concerned Scientists. We are a science-based advocacy organization, and we fight for a sustainable and just world out there. Um, we actually started in the 60s. Um, there's a couple MIT scientists who are really concerned, that's where the concern comes from, concerned about nuclear proliferation. Um, but since then, we've moved to advocate on a whole host of different issues from climate change to healthy democracy to, and we still do a bunch of nuclear um, uh, nuclear security kind of work as well. Um, I am a policy analyst on our clean transportation team. Um, we make sure that a, our transportation system is sustainable and just. Um, a lot of that focuses on things like electrification, uh, whether it's like passenger cars, trucks, and buses. And also we're expanding our work and um, how transit and other um, transportation strategies reduce vehicle miles traveled and ultimately get us to the place we want to be where people can move freely, can breathe freely, and also um, the, the climate is not as much of a crisis as it is right now. So happy to be here. Oh, a couple other things about us. Um, we have over 500,000 um, supporters out there across the country and across the world. Um, but a lot of our power comes from, we have what is known as what we call our science network, where we have, where we seek to, where we recruit scientists, engineers, um, social scientists are also included in that. And basically, um, allow people to expand beyond their deep technical expertise and give scientists the tools to use their voice um, in ways that can um, push policymakers towards the right direction. So that's a little bit about us. Cool. And I'm curious if you want to share any of your uh, personal background, how, how you became interested and involved in addressing these questions of clean transportation. Yeah, totally. So... I was originally an engineer. I thought that to, I, I, I was really scared about climate change. There's one moment in my childhood where I went to the science museum and, you know, the graph kept going up, talked about all the horrors of, of what a warming world would be. And so I was always interested in trying to solve the problem. Um, initially, I thought the route to that was mostly technical. Like, so I pursued engineering. I thought that Okay, if you could like invent the right thing, if you could do the right, do the right, whatever design of something that like, oh, you know, all the problems would be solved. Um, lo and behold, um, I realized that the technical part of solving this world, uh, climate change is only one of one portion of the problem. And so I, I moved in towards um, doing more policy facing work, trying to push decision makers who um, who shape our world to, to do better. In terms of how I, I do a bunch of work on transportation. And so um, my current interests or my current kind of portfolio, I focus on state level policy in the Northeast from Maine to Virginia. And I work on things ranging from uh, truck and bus electrification. There are these uh, bus electrification standards that are coming out of California that I'm working on, as well as I'm helping uh, shore up our campaign, which we're calling um, focused on equitable mobility, and that focuses on moving people around in a just and sustainable way. Cool. Um, so, yeah, you you wrote a blog post uh, last year for Union of Concerned Scientists, UCS, we'll call it from now on, um, 
about how transit helps the climate. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, I mean, probably maybe some people are familiar with some reasons, not with all. So maybe let's just start with the basics. You know, why do we need better transit for if we're going to help mitigate climate change? Yeah. Um, thanks. So, like, I think a lot of people kind of like have this association that transit is good for the climate, um, but like it's kind of vague about how that is all connected. And so um, for one, like we need better transit to be able to move around. That's like, that's one whole, that's like one huge purpose of the transportation system is to connect each other with the places, people, things that um, you need to thrive. But um, in terms of why transit specifically, um, a lot of people, when we're talking about climate change, um, we know that transportation is one of the biggest sectors of greenhouse gas emissions out there. Um, and so we really need to um, decarbonize the transportation system. And it's also like a huge problem that is very difficult to, to budge. Um, I guess like over the course of like the past couple decades, um, there have been major advances in sectors like the power sector, things like that. But transportation, the greenhouse gas emissions from that sector have just been kind of staying constant. And so um, one, of, one of the reasons for this is because um, the amount that people are driving their personal cars just keeps going up and up. We got more people driving their cars more and more. And so transit is an important strategy to help us do the same thing to get to where we need to go in a more efficient way. Um, yeah, I, I think we can start there. Cool. So, so yeah, you said a more efficient way. Um, certainly, you know, taking a bus or a train is, is more efficient than driving around, a, you know, a, a gas powered car or especially a gas powered truck or SUV. Um, what about, electric vehicle like personal electric vehicles um those are probably the the most visible or at least most talked about way of of decarbonizing the transportation sector and i think i you know i do think it's very good to have electric vehicles uh and you know for people who are driving if switching to evs as fast as possible is great um but what i guess what can transit do that evs can't yeah. And I think exactly what you're saying. Um, there's a lot of people focus on electric vehicles. We do a lot of work on electric vehicles, which is like, it's not like they're a very important part of decarbonizing the transportation system, no doubt. Um, but I think what is missed a lot of the times is that we need a both, like a both and kind of approach when addressing the climate impacts of the trans transportation system. As I was saying, the transportation system is a huge huge behemoth of a, of a sector to decarbonize. And so just like one strategy, like electrifying our vehicles is not gonna, is not gonna get us all the way there. So um, there's a false dichotomy between EVs and other climate solutions, such as reducing BMT, vehicle miles traveled um, by promoting transit or things like phasing out petroleum from fuels. And it's important to note that like, the, the opposition, the folks who the folks who don't want the climate crisis to be mitigated or have interests in that, 
the folks who are doing that want us to pit these strategies against each other, want us to think like, oh, is it EVs or transit? Like, we only have so much money and we can only spend it on one or some feeling like that. But when you look at the transportation system holistically, and if you look at those state or national climate goals, there's definitely no one silver bullet. And each strategy gets us some of the way there. And so strategies like transit and reducing vehicle miles traveled, especially one, they get people around pretty efficiently, especially if you're able to um, change land use patterns so that people can use them, use transit more um, more effectively. But also electri uh, electrifying the transportation system um, with its all of its major climate and public health benefits. It comes with an associated demand for minerals, for manufacturing um, electric vehicles. It comes with investments needed in our grid to transition the fossil fuels that we use, like gasoline and diesel, transitioning that, that instead of being burned um, in an internal combustion engine, transitioning that to electric sources. And so both of these strategies together, when you reduce VMT, you can actually reduce a lot of that kind of demand, reduce a lot of these things that are notable barriers towards electrifying the transportation system, and that makes it easier to mitigate the climate crisis. On the other side too, though, um, transit is like, transit helps people get around, and the, the, car, the car is more dependent on being able to afford high cost of car ownership. Yes. It is much more individualized and all those kinds of things where transit, not only does it help with the climate, um, but also helps with getting getting the transportation system to actually connect all people to the places they need to thrive. So that's that's something that like the, the other solutions don't touch as much on. Yeah, I think that kind of justice or equity element is important. Um, so uh what what would you say is kind of the state of public transit like how are we doing in the united states uh i know especially <laughs> since the pandemic but even before there's there's some room for growth yeah it's kind of it's a very timely question to ask because right now things are looking kind of dire but it's not just, as you said, it's not just now. It's This has been in the making for a while. And so currently transit agencies across the country are facing a fiscal crisis um, throughout the throughout the pandemic. Transit has got, had gotten a lot of big infusions of funding from federal, federal, federal stimulus funding. And that helped a lot to help transit exist throughout the pandemic and get our essential workers where they needed to go as it was shown like transit was still essential for all of us to be able to thrive in our society because it got a lot of essential workers to where they to keep us all running and so right now these agencies are going facing a really deep fiscal crisis and though of course transit as it is would benefit from greatly expanded service that would help a lot more people get around. There's what are known as network benefits where like, you know, with more transit service, more people start using it, which makes makes it easier to have more transit service, like that kind of positive reinforcement. But right now, if you talk to transit rider unions across the country who are fighting for systems in their area, um, people are 
people are just fighting to prevent service cuts. And these service cuts that could result in really dangerous, like a really dangerous negative feedback loop. A lot of transit agencies in order to fill the gap, debating things like service cuts, debating things like fare increases, things like that, which really kind of make the transit system less effective, less accessible for a lot of people. But it's it's kind of the state that they're in. So it's it's really a it's really a tough picture right now. Yeah, I think you mentioned how that's kind of a vicious cycle where if the service is worse, fewer people will use the transit and then there'll be more cuts because there's not people on it. Um, and so okay. who, you know, in terms of how to break this cycle, whose responsibility is it or some combination of like federal, state, local governments, uh, you know, how... How is how does transit funded? Who decides you know whether services are cut or expanded? Um, how yeah? How does that work? Yeah, um, notoriously, transportation planning funding is such a black box, and I don't know. Some part of me wants to say like almost purposefully so, but it's we when we talk about the dangers of car dependence, for instance, we often just invoke the long history from the fifties with the construction of the interstate highway system, and that's like. And if we talk about car dependence, it's a very like broad and could be like a kind of an abstract feeling kind of concept, but. What's obscured in that is that all these decisions to perpetuate this reality are happening right now in state DOTs or metropolitan planning organizations. And these are the folks um, who funnel a lot of federal dollars as well as state um, funding and decide whether or not, oh, we're going to build a new highway project, we're going to build a new transit project or a new bike bike pedestrian safety effort or anything like that. And so these organizations control a lot of like the billions of dollars that go towards transportation planning and and transportation investments and these are the places that um that make all the make the decisions that shape our current reality and yeah uh, one other thing that i want to mention is that um the most recent at the federal level, transportation funding is decided in like five-year increments on these quote-unquote like surface transportation reauthorization bills. I think uh, usually people just call them the infrastructure bill. Um, but this comes every five years, and the most recent one was known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law or the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and that, that passed in 2021. Um, it passed an unprecedented amount of federal funding for transportation um, in general, but um, the breakdown between how much is spent towards expanding car-dependent infrastructure versus transit, that largely remained the same. Um, the next opportunity for that coming from that is in a couple of years, but as of now, all these federal funding, all these federal dollars are, are flowing towards states and local municipalities, regional metropolitan planning organizations, and they actually have a lot of discretion with how they use these funding how they use this funding. Um, currently, the funding amount is like around $643 billion uh, throughout the five years of the current um, transportation bill. And states states and regional governments are actually allowed to quote unquote flex a lot of their a lot of the funding that's designated towards highways or car dependent infrastructure. And they're allowed to flex that to use for transit projects if they choose to do so. Um, states like Vermont, 
use this to provide rural transit services while states like New Jersey or California affects funding for transit improvements like new train cars or new transit, new services and things like that. But in order to make any of that happen, um, it's all in the hands of state and local decision makers in order to, in order to make transit or reducing vehicle miles traveled a priority. So the funding flow is very, is like, notoriously very complicated but there are some there are specific places that are particularly useful for people to hear um for decision makers to hear what what people actually want mm-hmm. so yeah you mentioned i think vermont new jersey and california are there any other either states or localities um that uh maybe are pursuing some particularly promising initiatives to include or to improve transit that you think should be models or or other policies that maybe no one's doing yet, but that you think they should be doing? <laughs> There's definitely a lot of policies that nobody's <laughs> doing yet. But I think one promising, uh, one like case for hope recently has been, so uh, when transportation planners and engineers make decisions about um, what projects to choose or not, um, since like a couple decades ago, um, transportation, like federal transportation funding has been tied towards, you have to, has been tied towards like an ethos that you must make decisions based off of objective kind of criteria that you can measure, a couple metrics, things like that. Um, usually this includes things like safety or reducing congestion. Um, but States like, I think, one of the first states to try and use this in a different way was Colorado, which around two years ago came up, came out with this quote unquote greenhouse gas performance, uh, greenhouse gas measurement rule that um, it basically required all transportation planning, all transportation projects that go through the transportation planning process. they had to do an analysis on the greenhouse gas um, greenhouse gas emissions that are Im- okay. implicated in it, and then they have to add up all of these projects in the plan, and it has to add up to a decreasing timeline or decreasing decreasing goals that Colorado is setting. And so, basically, like traditionally, you don't have to think about climate change <laughs> when making transportation project decisions, and Colorado was one state where they they made that happen. They were like, oh, we actually need to be thinking about this. This is one of the major uh-huh. impacts of the transportation system. Minnesota did a similar thing that passed in the mo- their most recent transportation state transportation bill. And then now at the federal level, they're considering, albeit like a, like a weaker version of a similar rule that would require um, states state dots and mpos metropolitan planning organizations to um to consider greenhouse gases in their in all the transportation project decisions they make okay so if they're deciding whether to put money toward a highway expansion or toward a bus system expansion they one of the factors they consider has to be the emissions impact is that yeah and in colorado it's not just they have to consider; they have to add it all up, and it has to go down. Okay. You know? um, whereas um, some of the other some of the other rules could be a little weaker. So. <laughs> that sounds like it is something they should be doing. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what are some things that, well, okay, I'll, I'll start here. Um, I, I currently live in Detroit. Um, well, at least I'm moving in about a week, but I currently do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the, the bus system here, which I'm pretty reliant on, um, is often, uh, not very reliable. Um, you know, buses that are scheduled won't show up. Uh, buses will be late. And my understanding is that at least one factor here is there is, um, both in Detroit and in some of the surrounding counties, a pretty significant driver shortage. Um, and the drivers, uh, simply aren't paid very well. And so it's not an attractive job and, uh, they have trouble, I guess, hiring and retaining drivers is my understanding. Um, you know, I was reading some of what you were writing. It sounds like this is a, a widespread problem, not having enough bus drivers. Uh, is this, yeah, what, what can be done about that? Or is this something you're paying attention to? Yeah, definitely something that we're keeping our eye on. Um, it's been like, I think a lot of folks, when they think about transit, or fighting for better transit, it's just like, oh, like more money would be great. But also this, like the operator, the operator crisis has been like one of the, one of, like of the other very thorny problems that has been plaguing the industry. And so this is definitely something that's been well known in the transit industry for a long time, which is that, um, that you need a commercial driver's license in order to, in order to drive a bus. But a lot of the other jobs that come with that come with being with that license that you could get with that license, for instance, truck driving or things like that, um, are usually a lot more lucrative than than the transit industry. And so, because of that, uh, the transit being a bus driver or a transit agency is has has been a really tough. Um, it's been really tough to recruit bus drivers for for this job. Some other aspects. There's many aspects towards this. One of them is being able to pay drivers more that's like the baseline of being able to attract being able to attract more people to apply for the roles but also there's been thing there's been conversations going about um the quality of uh, bus driver jobs thinking like things like oh like even just like being able to have a convenient bathroom on Mm. your route shift and things like that i know i remember hearing folks in maryland were talking about that um, but also, like, there are, like, many things with the everyday of bus driving, things like what your shift timing is. And, you know, one of the problems for bus drivers is split shifts. So, like, a lot of times transit agencies plan a lot of service around rush hours when people are commuting for nine to five jobs. And because of that, they have more service in in the morning and in the evening. Um with a lull in service in the middle. And because of that, the way they they time out some people's shifts is that they have to, um, like you have to come in for two four hour shifts just like twice in a day. And like, understandably that kind of sucks. It breaks up your day, it's kind of hard to, plan it, hard to plan out your life. And if you've got family and stuff like that, it just adds to your commute time. So there's a lot of quality of life things that I know that transit agencies are considering, but I think like one of the biggest things is that uh, transit bus operators are um, are paid through operations funding in 
And so in transit funding lingo, there's two worlds. There's operations funding and capital funding. Operations funding, you can use to pay for bus driver wages, for more service, maintenance, those kinds of things. Well, capital funding is dedicated for things like new buses, new rail lines, new, new anything like that. And so in at the federal level and at the state level, a lot of transit funding is like dedicated towards this capital funding because a lot of people want a new bus line because it's it looks really great. It's also just like legitimately quite exciting to have something new like that. But what comes with that that is very under under recognized is that new investments come with even larger commitments to operate new new service line, new train lines or anything like that. And so one of the big conversations in policy world in policy circles is um, how we can increase the share of operations to capital funding um, because a lot of the times like agencies can be hamstrung for um, operations funding while they have a lot of capital funding and the amount that you can transfer between both of those pots of money is very minimal so that is also one reason like it's related to the operator shortage because you know their wages come out of operations funding. It's all entangled, but that's also another place where um, you can you can see improvements. Cool. So, you know, from a climate perspective, like we talked about, buses and rail are typically going to be cleaner than you know driving alone in a gas-powered car. Um, but mm-hmm. you know a, a diesel bus is still emitting greenhouse gases. Um, how, what are some things that can be done to decarbonize uh, public transit? Yeah. Yeah, exactly what you said. Um, like the carbon emissions of a diesel bus kind of depend on how many people wind up riding it. Um, but in terms of other ways, uh, like there is like a huge effort towards um, electrifying transit buses and and rail out there. Um, Transit buses were actually like one of the first kind of applications of electrification of medium and heavy duty vehicles because their like procurement processes and everything were like a lot easier. The the application was one of the actually the first applications that electrification seemed like very viable. Um, So there's been many efforts towards electrifying buses transit buses, which would drastically reduce emissions. Um, there's a federal grant program called the Low to No Emissions Program that provides funding to agencies specifically for this. They just came out with their announcements of who got the funding for that recently. Um, unfortunately, that program um, includes fossil fuels like propane and natural gas and like 20% of what it is of the funding dedicated to it, and we're fighting to try and reduce that amount. But I think electrifying electrifying our existing transit buses is one way to like do the win win, where like you know you have you have both investments in transit as well as you're investing in making it um, even more an even more climate friendly strategy. Um, and I would also say that electrifying buses, but it's like it's not just like one technology. It's like a bunch of different, a slew of different technologies, and like kind of suiting the application in different cities and places around the country. So, for instance, like I know um, 
San Francisco and I think like Boston, unfortunately, just got rid of a lot of them. But um, instead of huge battery powering your bus, trying to charge um, at the beginning or end of, ends of routes, um, some some transit agencies consider things like trolley buses, which are, I don't know if you've seen like those buses with the little, okay. little antennas on the top and they link up mm-hmm. to the cables. Like that is like a very, like you can electrify a route very quickly and very feasibly with that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of different technologies. I think like some folks in California um, are, are doing things with hydrogen, fuel cell, um, so there's a lot of different technologies to help decarbonize the way um, transit is run. So that's, yeah, that's that's one thing. Cool. I I was reading an article a couple months ago, I think it was in Vox, um, that was kind of making the case that there is sometimes a tension between electrification and improving reliability and coverage of bus networks that at least some localities, uh, you know, are electrifying, but at the cost of, you know, to save money, they're also reducing coverage. So is this, is this tension real? Is it possible to pursue both goals at once? Um, or what, are there trade-offs that we should pay attention to? Or, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I de- like, can't deny it, definitely, the, like, the tension is out there, but I think it's a harmful tension for a lot of folks who are um, advocating for for mitigating climate change and trying to reduce the most harmful effects of that. Um, I think like what we know is we need both. Um, what we know as well is that the pots of money that fund both of these things, they, they can come from different places, things like that. They do not necessarily have to be competing. And also we do know that um, some of the huge pots of money that are shaping the transportation system are things like highway funding. Mm. And like, it's literally orders of magnitudes greater than the funding that is put in towards things like electrification and things like that. And so I think like, it's a mistake to, it's a mistake to be like, oh, service versus electrifying buses or anything like that. I think also one thing to note is that buses make up a quite small portion of vehicles on the roads compared to like all the personal cars mm-hmm. people drive in or trucks trucks that are out there hauling our goods around and things like that. And so like we don't have to focus solely on electrifying the buses. That's not mm-hmm. the end all be all. There's also a lot of other things that we need to electrify out there too. Um, but yeah, I, I think just generally it, it pains me to see electrification and transit advocates pitted against each other when in the end we need to be running in the same direction in order to address climate change. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me that, I don't know, they both need to happen and there is money for it that's going in other places so that it shouldn't be those two pitted against each other. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, next question would just be that, as you mentioned, you know, transit helps people get around often who either can't afford cars or for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, you know, transit is, is the, the easier way to get around. But sometimes anyway, you know, transit is 
expansion of transit can be linked to gentrification or, or other things. So how do we make sure that expansion of transit is done in a, in a just way that sort of helps the people who most need it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a... Well, I'm glad you're asking this question. You're, you're <laughs> in it, Dan. Um, so expansion of transit, especially when you're thinking like new rail line or things like that can come with significant kind of land use impacts. Like a new train station can definitely be associated with things like displacement and things like that. Um, a lot of transit advocates are cognizant of this and are like, are coming up with different ways to um, try and mitigate these impacts. But it's important to note first that like, yeah. And like in a lot of communities, like new things like a transit system or or like do bus line or things like that, though, like would be so beneficial, like if it's not geared towards the, the communities in place, then if it's if these transportation investments are not for the communities that already exist in these areas and are instead for like attracting, attracting new, more wealthy residents to an area or anything like that, then that's exactly what will happen. And that's exactly what people fear. Um, so. I think like one, one, the baseline way of doing of, or the foundation for ensuring that doesn't have, that this doesn't happen is meaningful public engagement. And so like transit and transit efforts can indeed change the game for community, but must commute, must include communities at the table. Um, and this like, if done wrong, this is like just a signal of displacement, especially for rooted black and brown communities. And so Meaningful public engagement, we're talking like not just like one public hearing at a random time of night. People can't even get there because the bus service doesn't even get there, get get them there on time or anything like that. We're talking actually meeting people where they're at, we're talking about um, diverse ways, robust kind of diverse ways of including people, um, going to their communities, um, going to bus stops and surveying bus riders about their needs things like that. And there's a lot of talk in transit planner world about what it means to go beyond the bare minimum that's required in in federal law of the checkbox exercise checkbox exercise of public involvement and go beyond that towards um, something that actually engages the community. So that's that's one thing. And then another like policy oriented kind of way of ensuring things like this don't happen are Folks talk a lot about this term trans transit oriented development, where, you know, around a bus stop or a train station, like, oh, like, you know, let's try and get some businesses there, it'll boost the local economy, yada yada yada, things like that. Um and that is indeed like a benefit of transit. Uh, what is necessary when doing any kind of effort like that, I think like people like start adding like an E at the f- beginning of TOD to make it equitable transit-oriented development. Um, there are policies that you can put in place, anti-displacement measures that can help um, help existing community members actually get the benefits of the investments that come to town. And so there are policies, but in the end, um, making sure that communities are at the table when you're making changes to the community, that's like one of the fundamentals of transportation justice. Like, if you're if you're allowed to if you if you can kind of self determine what your what your community looks like that's like that's what we're all looking mm-hmm. for. Um.
Yeah. And, you know, I think often when we talk about transit, we're either implicitly or explicitly thinking about urban areas. Um, do you see much potential mm-hmm. for for transit policy or other ways of reducing vehicle miles traveled in more like suburban or rural areas? Mm. Yeah. And I think this is one thing that really hurts transit is um, people thinking like, ah, it's just a city folk thing. We're like, you know, like, oh, like we're not New York City. Like, okay, fine. Like there's not a lot of places in our country that are, that are like New York City. Fine. Um, but I think like the concept of transit, which is like relies on kind of cluster development, things like that, it like definitely applies towards rural areas. People in rural rural areas still have transit needs. Like there are people who cannot drive in rural areas. There is, you know, um, there are people who cannot afford cars in rural areas, all those kinds of things. And like currently, like in many areas with low transit service, all that means is they're kind of stuck in place um, or, you know, have to rely on a lot of other ways of getting around. So transit definitely um, has a lot of potential rural areas. There's also like different technologies that, or different ways that transit can be in rural areas. We're talking like things like more flexible kind of services and things like that, that are like not as dependent on density as like building a train line or something like that. Um, but I think like in general, it's like a, it's a really important thing to be able to make happen. The example I was saying before in Vermont, like they they decided that allowing folks who live in r- their rural areas to get around was uh, get around via transit was an important thing, and so they flexed their highway funding for it, and now they have one of the one of like a very nice rural transit system compared to what it is, and it could always use more, of course. But um, I think that's that's something that is largely underrecognized and glossed over. As well as, like, when you're talking about trying to get support for transit out there at the federal level, like, we need rural areas to be on board with with this in order to make it happen. And so um, that's that's also another reason to, to explore more of what transit looks like in rural areas and make it a real thing so that those folks aren't left behind. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I thought maybe with the last... 10, 15 minutes or so, we could pivot to, uh, trucking. Um, you, you write about and research, um, the electrification of medium and heavy duty vehicles. You mentioned earlier that includes buses. Um, but just kind of, so people know what you're talking about, what types of vehicles does this (laughs) include and what doesn't it include? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's all this lingo out there in transportation world. So when people say medium and heavy duty vehicles, they say it's like it's based on this vehicle class thing, which is about how heavy the vehicle is. Okay. Um, and so um, the category of medium heavy duty vehicles uh, includes things from like we're not talking about your Ford F one fifties, but the level above that, the F two fifty that are used for a lot of like work trucks and things like that. Um, that's the smallest. And then we're going through towards like, this thing also includes things like delivery vans, talking about all those Amazon delivery vans that are roaming around. Okay. Um, we're thinking about like 
emergency vehicles, fire trucks, ambulances. We're talking about other step vans that are used, box trucks that are like, I think like, think like the things that you might rent for moving. Um, but like a lot of companies use that for their daily operations. And then all the way up to like, we're talking those long haul semi tractor trailers that, um, that go, go across state lines, things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different vehicles and like that are included in this category, but it's just all those, all those big vehicles. Okay. And so, you know, there are certainly a lot fewer of these types of vehicles, um, than there are, you know, personal cars, but you, you've pointed out that the, the impacts are disproportionate both on the climate and also air pollution. Um, so why, why is, do these vehicles matter? Okay. Why are these medium and heavy duty vehicles important? So they do comprise only 10% of the vehicles on us roads, but heavy duty vehicles contribute 28% of greenhouse gas emissions because you know, they're bigger, they emit more per mile, but also a lot of these like commercial kinds of vehicles get driven a lot more than, you know, what you might think for a personal car. And is that transportation emissions or road emissions? Ooh, yeah. Uh, we're talking about road emissions. Okay. So 10% of the vehicles on the road, but 28% of the, of the greenhouse gas emissions on the road. Got That's it. What I mean. Yeah. Um, besides that though, they're also responsible for 45% of the, nitrogen oxide emissions on the road and 57% of the PM 2.5 or this is like fine particulate matter emissions on the road. And so out, they have an outsized greenhouse gas impact and also something that comes up, especially with medium and heavy duty vehicles is that the diesel exhaust that comes from these vehicles has significant public health concerns as well. And so electrifying these vehicles you get the double whammy where you can help mitigate climate change well as well as like um, reducing all the serious health impacts that come with um, harmful air pollution and yeah you have some some maps on the UCS website which show that a lot of this air pollution is disproportionately in communities of color yeah definitely um, long so, legacy of environmental racism that makes that happen so so what are the uh, technologies at our disposal for uh, decarbonizing these these medium and heavy-duty vehicles? Yeah. There are... So when we're talking about electrification, like, especially for medium and heavy-duty vehicles, like, there's a lot of just, like, battery electric vehicle technologies that are there, out there, ready being manufactured by by vehicle manufacturers um, and like we can expect to see that these technologies are going to you're going to increasingly see them on the roads more and more in the next couple of years um, there are and maybe before we move on from that is it a problem that are they gonna have to stop and charge all the time or what is the range on these are these um, obstacles or, or at this point have they been mostly overcome that they're not going to be a huge issue so there, I want to find this number for you, which is real quick, that there are in North America, 
there are over like 200 different models of these medium and heavy duty vehicles that like electric medium and heavy duty vehicles. That's wow. a lot. And when we're talking about that, like when we talk about medium heavy duty vehicles, we're like there's like a huge range of different use cases. There are vehicles that kind of, you know, make one trip and then go back home. There are vehicles that are spend days out on the road, but like a majority of these vehicles, they have a, a they call it duty cycle. That's kind of the, their schedule. Um, lasts like a day and like these trucks can easily do the work during the day, come back at night and, you know, plug into a charger at the depot and charge for the next day. And so um, the range on these vehicles, we're talking um, like we're talking over 150 miles for their range, there are there are heavy duty long haul tractor trailers that like are starting to go up to like 500 miles, 600 miles oh. of like on a single charge. These batteries are huge for those ones. But um, across the wide range of applications, if you think like even just, like if you think like a classic delivery van kind of application. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to base at night and charging for the next day of deliveries, like is extremely feasible. And so um, extremely feasible, especially in the, like with the ranges that are, that are here. Um, I think like a lot of duty cycles, duty cycle, the schedule, um, a lot of vehicle routes like are under 150 miles a day anyways. And so um, that's how a majority of charging will happen. There are also investments in more public, they call it DC fast charging, um, that will like try to charge up these trucks in a jiffy on the highway corridors. And there's like, there's a large federal program called the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program that's putting a lot of investments into making these corridors ready, uh, these corridors along highways ready for um, more long haul applications. Cool. And then um, beyond battery electric, are there other technologies you're going to list? Yeah. Um, the other major technology is hydrogen, um, hydrogen fuel cell. We're not okay. talking about burning hydrogen. It's like, you know, it's the, there's hydrogen and then it reforms into water and with that it releases energy to power, um, to power a truck. It's, it releases electricity. And so like, it's like similarly an electric vehicle, but it's the way that the energy is stored is just different. Um, these technologies um, people are optimistic about how they can provide for um, long, longer range and niche applications where, you know, a truck may have to go for a longer time or things like that. Um, but there are also concerns with like hydrogen fuel cell infrastructure um, with making sure that it's green, making sure that it's not just associated with fossil fuels because a lot of hydrogen is produced that way. Um, so there are active conversations about that. But hydrogen fuel cell is another promising technology for this. Okay. So how do we, uh, how do we get um, more, more buses, trucks, emergency vehicles, et cetera, to start adopting um, these technologies? You, you mentioned something called the advanced clean truck rule. Uh, what is that? Yeah. Um, so currently, like the industry is kind of at a tipping point. Like, you know, um, the manufacturers have these um, technologies ready, but they're kind of like the where the market will go is a little how fast that these technologies will will come is kind of 
up to policymakers to decide. And so one way, one big policy that has been going across many different states um, to affect this is called the Advanced Clean Trucks Rule. California has the authority to um, issue vehicle standards like this. Only California is allowed to do this as per the Clean Air Act. Um, all other states have to abide by the federal standard. But huh. California recently um, put out something called the Advanced Clean Trucks Rule. This would require manufacturers to sell increasing amounts of um, zero emissions trucks. We're talking either either uh, battery electric or hydrogen fuel cell and things like that. Um, this rule would require increasing sales of that and would basically just provide for the availability out there on dealers' lots so that fleets could take advantage of these technologies. Um, there's a lot of moving parts with a, a transition to electric trucks. And so this rule provides certainty so that folks can plan out the charging infrastructure associated with it, plan out like how um, how many trucks will be on their how many electric trucks will be on their lots and things like that. So California adopted this rule a couple of years ago, and now states across the states across the U.S. have the authority to choose now between adopting California's rule or sticking with the federal rule. Many states have already adopted the rule. We're talking um, Washington, Oregon, uh, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, um, and many other states right now are in the current process of considering it. I work in the Northeast, and so like I know like Maine, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, they're like literally in the process of adopting these rules to make sure that they have electric trucks on their lots. So um, many like states can adopt these rules. It encourages electric truck adoption, which would help not only climate but also you know the pu associated public health um, public health benefits as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, my understanding is is there are similar at least proposals with with personal electric vehicles as well, where sort of by year X you have to sell or X percent of the new vehicles have to be electric by year Y. A higher percentage have to be electric, and then eventually 100%. Um, are there ways with, I guess, either with personal EVs or with um, even heavy-duty vehicles to also make sure the the older ones are replaced? Mm. This is not my area of expertise, but okay. UCS just put out a report about how the older vehicles are one of the, like, when you're thinking about the older vehicles, you're talking about, like, vehicles that emit more, you're also talking about vehicles that are owned by folks who are lower income and by used and things like that. And so there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that those vehicles are transitioned in an equitable way. Cool. Um, yeah. Is there is there anything else either on uh, medium heavy duty vehicles or on transit that you you think I should have asked you about or any other policies you want to throw out there? Um, huh. So on the on the medium and heavy duty vehicles front, um, it's important to note that like there's a big coalition of environmental organizations who want them due to the benefits of electrification for the climate. But um, when I'm talking about the public health impacts, we're talking about specifically things like environmental justice. And so like when you're thinking about like a lot of these medium and heavy duty vehicles, we got like the proliferation of Amazon warehouses, like across the country, they're popping up 
all over the place. And with that comes associated truck traffic, comes associated diesel particulate emissions right now. Mm-hmm. And those are concentrated those are concentrated in near black and brown communities that are already like bearing the host of a bunch of different burdens. And so um, it's important that when we're talking about electrification of these uh, trucks and buses, um, that we're also bringing in, or that we're also focusing on the way that these emissions are distributed because of the long legacy of environmental injustice that is associated with these, these vehicles as they are right now. Yeah, and maybe maybe on that note, uh, you mentioned that part of your job description, I think, is is advocate, or at least on the website, it is. And what are you know some of the um, opportunities for advocacy, either through Union of Concerned Scientists or or other orgs in this realm? Yes, definitely. So for us, um, if you are a if you're a scientist, like please join our science network. We'll be able to connect you with tools for advocacy, how to testify at a public hearing. We can help you organize your scientist buddies to do the same. Um, we can give you all the tools you might need. Um, for everyone else, like we also have, uh, please sign up for um, our newsletter. Our, we don't send that many emails, but um, if you go to ucsusa.org, you'll be able to find out all the things that we're doing, um, all the events that we're putting on and the opportunities for advocacy if you want to get involved. So, Cool. Um, and one last question I actually just thought of, um, and maybe maybe it's not something that you work on or that UCS works on, but you know, with personal transportation, we're talking about reducing vehicles mile tra- vehicle miles traveled, right, in addition to electrification. Mm-hmm. And are there prospects or people thinking about reducing vehicle miles traveled when it comes to heavier duty vehicles, whether that's through like, you know, all those Amazon vans, is there a way to have fewer of them or make them more efficient in their routes? Or, uh, is that, or, or yeah, anything else, you know, is that, is that something that is on your radar or on anyone's radar to your knowledge? Definitely on my radar. It's important to know that first, like it's, like like I said before, like it was only medium and heavy duty vehicles only being ten percent of the vehicles on the roads. It's similarly like around that number for the percentage of vehicle miles traveled. Okay, um, it's like a little higher. So it's it is smaller, but yes, it is definitely still important. Uh, but a lot of people focus on the personal vehicles for that reason. But um, when we're talking about heavy duty vehicle miles traveled. Um, like we're talking about business decisions for route choice and things like that. So it's a little different of a ball game, but there are different ways that to reduce um, that people are thinking of. This is like very much more of an emerging, emerging kind of space that people are thinking about, but like things like people have proposed cargo bikes and more efficient route planning, as you said, and things like that to um, reduce vehicle miles traveled. Um, there are policies, one of them uh, that's coming out of um, South Coast Air Quality Management District in California, which would would um, encourage uh, warehouses to think about their emissions, both from an electrification standpoint, as well as how many miles traveled that are associated with a warehouse. Um, but yeah, I would say that that's a 
that's like a next frontier kind of thing. We definitely got to be working on that too. So, yeah. Cool. Well, um, thanks so much. Is there anything you want to add about any of this? Uh, I think I'm, I think I'm good. David. Thanks so much for having me here. It was, uh, it was fun to talk. All right. Yeah. Really appreciate it, Kevin. I, I, I learned a lot and yeah, I'm excited to share this episode. Thanks so much for listening. That was Kevin Shen of the Union of Concerned Scientists. In the episode description, I've included a link to some of his blog posts about transit and about decarbonizing medium to heavy duty vehicles. Um, so you can check those out if you're interested in learning more. Um, and yeah, you want to like, subscribe, share this podcast, I would be grateful. And if not, I'm still grateful that you made it this far. Uh, hope you have a great day. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!